0: to interview for a senior management position. I'd been watching the company for more than a decade from my perch at one of its competitors and had tired of finishing second. After eight interviews and a three-week period of silence and self-doubt, I was hired to lead one of Zagram's product lines. I was about to be introduced to a senior management ritual peculiar to Zagram, a day-long one-on-one meeting with the executive vice president Bud Jefferson. Bud was right-hand man to Zagram's president, Kate Stennerud. And due to a shift within the executive team, he was about to become my new boss. I had tried to find out what this meeting was all about, but my colleagues' explanations confused me. They mentioned a discovery that solves people problems, how no one really focuses on results, and that something about the Bud meeting, as it was called, and strategies that evidently follow from it, is key to Zagram's incredible success. I had no idea what they were talking about, but I was eager to meet and impress my new boss. I knew Bud by reputation only. He had been present at a product rollout conference I attended, but had taken no active part. He was a youngish-looking, fifty-year-old combination of odd-fitting characteristics— a wealthy man who drove around in an economy car without hubcaps, a near-high school dropout who graduated with law and business degrees, summa cum laude from Harvard, a connoisseur of the arts who was hooked on the Beatles. Despite his apparent contradictions, and perhaps partly because of them, Bud was revered as something of an icon in the company. Like Zagram, mysterious yet open, driven yet humane, Polished, yet real. He was universally admired, if wondered about, in the company. It took ten minutes on foot to cover the distance from my office in Building 8 to the lobby of the central building. The pathway, one of twenty-three connecting Zagram's ten buildings, meandered beneath oak and maple canopies along the banks of Kate's Creek, a postcard, perfect man-made stream that was the brainchild of Kate Stennerud, "'and named after her by the employees. "'As I scaled the central building's hanging steel stairway up to the third floor, "'I reviewed my performance during my month at Zagram. "'I was always among the earliest to arrive and latest to leave. "'I felt that I was focused "'and didn't let outside matters interfere with my objectives. "'Although my wife often complained of it, I was making a point to outwork and outshine every coworker who might compete for promotions in the coming years. I had nothing to be ashamed of. I was ready to meet Bud Jefferson. Arriving in the main lobby of the third floor, I was greeted by Bud's secretary, Maria. You must be Tom Callum, she said with enthusiasm. Yes, thank you. I have an appointment with Bud for nine o'clock, I said. Yes, Bud asked me to have you wait for him in the East View room. He should be with you in about five minutes. Maria escorted me down the hall and left me to myself in a large conference room, where from the long bank of windows I admired the views of the campus between the leaves of the green Connecticut wood. A minute or so later there was a brisk knock on the door and in walked Bud. Hello, Tom. Thanks for coming, he said with a big smile as he offered me his hand. ''Please, sit down. Can I get something for you to drink? Uh, Coffee? Juice?'' Uh, ''No, thank you,'' I replied. ''I've had plenty already this morning.'' I settled in the black leather chair nearest me, my back to the window, and waited for Bud as he poured himself some water out of the pitcher in the serving area in the corner. He walked back with his water, bringing the pitcher and an extra glass with him. He set them on the table between us. Uh, ''Sometimes things can get pretty hot in here. We have a lot to do this morning.'' Please feel free whenever you'd like. Thanks, I stammered. I was grateful for the gesture, but more unsure than ever what this was all about. Tom, said Bud abruptly, I've asked you to come today for one reason, an important reason. Okay, I said evenly, trying to mask the anxiety I was feeling. You have a problem, a problem you're going to have to solve if you're going to make it at Zagram. I felt as if I'd been kicked in the stomach. I groped for some appropriate word or sound, but my mind was racing and words failed me. I was immediately conscious of the pounding of my heart and the sensation of blood draining from my face. As successful as I had been in my career, one of my hidden weaknesses was that I was too easily knocked off balance. I had learned to compensate by training the muscles in my face and eyes to relax so that no sudden twitch would betray my alarm. And now it was as if my face instinctively knew that it had to detach itself from my heart or I would be found out to be the same cowering third grader who broke into an anxious sweat, hoping for a well-done sticker every time Mrs. Lee passed back the homework. Finally, I managed to say, A problem? What do you mean? Do you really want to know? asked Bud. I'm not sure. I guess I need to from the sound of it. Yes, Bud agreed. You do. Chapter 2 A Problem You have a problem, Bud continued. The people at work know it. Your spouse knows it. Your mother-in-law knows it. I bet even your neighbors know it. He was smiling warmly. The problem is that you don't know it. I found myself speechless. How could I know I had a problem if I didn't even know what the problem was? I'm afraid I don't know what you mean. Are you saying that I... That I... I I had no idea what he was talking about. Well, he said, in a way that made me think he was enjoying this. Think about these examples, for starters. Remember the time you had a chance to fill the car with gas before your wife took it, but then you decided she could fill it just as easily as you, so you took the car home empty? How did he know about that? I wondered. Or the time you promised the kids a trip to the ballpark, but backed out at the last minute on some feeble excuse, because something more appealing had come up. How did he know about that? Or the time under similar circumstances you took the kids to the ball game anyway but made them feel guilty for it? Uh-oh. Or the time when reading to your toddler you cheated him by turning more than one page at a time because you were impatient and he wouldn't notice anyway? Yeah, but he didn't notice. Or the time you parked in a handicapped only parking zone and then faked a limp so people wouldn't think you were a total jerk? Ha. I've never done that. Or the time you did the same thing but ran from the car with apparent purpose to show that your errand was so important that you just had to park there. Well, I have to admit I have done that. Or the time driving at night the driver of a car close behind you kept his brights on and you let him pass so you could do the same thing back to him. So? And think of your style at work, he continued. Now on a roll... Do you sometimes demean others? Are you sometimes punishing and disdainful toward the people around you, scornful of their laziness and incompetence? Uh, I guess that's true part of the time, I muttered. I had to admit it. He seemed to know. But... Or do you more often try to do the acceptable thing? He interrupted. Do you indulge the people who report to you with kindness and all the other soft stuff you can think of in order to get them to do what you want, even though you still feel basically scornful toward them? This was hitting below the belt. I work hard at treating my people right, I protested. I'm sure you do, he said, but let me ask you a question. How do you feel when you're treating them right, as you say? Is it any different from the way you feel when you're being punishing and scornful toward people? Deep down, is there any difference? I'm not sure I know what you mean, I replied, stalling for time. I mean this. Do you feel you have to put up with people? Do you feel, honestly now, that you have to work pretty hard to succeed as a manager when you're stuck with the kind of people you're stuck with? Stuck? I asked, still stalling. Think about it. You know what I mean, he said, still smiling. I thought frantically. There was no escape. Finally, I replied, Well, I guess it's true. I do think a lot of people are lazy and incompetent, but what am I supposed to do? Telling them doesn't usually help. So I try to get them going in other ways. Some I cajole, others I try to motivate, others I outsmart, and so on. And I try to smile a lot. I'm kind of proud of how I handle myself, actually.